And then there's a, a almost like a, a rebellious spirit that says, people don't know what they're talking about. People, there, there are people here that are just like me. And, and how dare they speak about what they don't know? And so as I moved in, you developed that pride of don't talk down about my neighborhood. I live there. You're talking down about me. Right. And um, you're talking down about my, my friends or the people next door to me that I know and you don't know them. Welcome back to Neighboring, a podcast hosted by NeighborLink Fort Wayne, where we attempt to ask uh, and learn about what it means to be a good neighbor. And specifically, we're today here on part five of our Healthy Neighborhood series, where we're sitting down with the five neighborhoods that we are doing some research around and getting to know this year in an attempt to figure out and kind of answer the question, or at least learn more about the question, what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy? If there is such a thing as a healthy neighborhood, what are the metrics? What would they, uh, what would they be, and what's the measure on that? And today we're here with the neighborhood that I know the least amount about in Fort Wayne, uh, the Petarudasil neighborhood. So we have some neighbors here that are going to come and share from their experiences, longtime neighbors, uh, what neighborhood association is, how they got involved and a little bit more about their neighborhood. So welcome to the Neighboring Podcast. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Would love for you guys to just introduce yourselves. We'll start with Lori, and we'll kind of work around the table. Um, so introduce yourself. How did you How did you guys end up in Petarudasil? How long have you been there? And maybe a characteristic about what you love about it. My name is Lori Hafner, and I have been um, a I've been living in Petarudasol off and on since I was born because I was born in, in my house that we're currently living okay. in. So we're living in the house I grew up in, but I haven't always lived here. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, when After we got married, Randy and I were transferred to Illinois and Missouri and came back then eventually when our oldest son was born. And uh, so when we moved back in 1985, so we've been uh, living in the Petarudasol neighborhood since 1985 as a family. Okay, wow. So you grew, grew up <laughs> I there? I grew up there. So I have seen it house. before yeah. and after, you know, the kind of early years and later. Well, that's, uh, that's great. I would love, let's uh, spend some time talking about that. Okay. Hi, Randy. Hi. And uh, I followed her. So yeah. <laughs> my name is Randy. And, uh, uh, and yes, we, uh, we've been back there since 85. We've uh, really made it a, a place that, we call home and our children appreciate coming back to and uh, it's uh, we like the, the quietness of it uh, yeah. which is I know sounds odd when you're talking about Fort Wayne and living on a relatively busy street but uh, uh, it, it is it is nice and nice and quiet go for strolls sometimes uh, back and forth on Rudisil. Yeah. So. Randy, did you grow up in Fort Wayne? Were you born? In oh yeah, I grew up in Fort Wayne as well, but uh, further south, uh, uh, down um, a couple mile and a half, something like that. Anyway, uh, a little further south. Mark and I'm Mark Mays, and uh, my wife and I moved to the neighborhood in 2001 in May. So we're just coming up now, right now, on. 19 years. Uh, this was our first home purchase as a married couple. So uh, neither of us grew up in Fort Wayne. So we, we moved here after college. Graduated from Taylor University in Upland in 95. And then we rented and we steadily moved from the north to the south. 
uh, just uh, renting an apartment or subletting an apartment uh, or being in a duplex. And then when we were, and then we bounced down to Southbridge Apartments for a little bit, and then we started searching for houses and moved to McKinney Avenue. All right, that's great, Lori. What um, we kind of lead these podcasts. I find it very helpful for um, to spend some time dis- discussing and describing the neighborhood, um, geography, history. Um, the layout, the type of housing. So could you, since you've been there since a kid, can you can you start us, and, and Randy and Mark can kind of fill in the details, but describe the neighborhood. Try to paint a picture. If, if someone was just listening or isn't really familiar with Petarudasil, can you just start by describing, painting a picture of what Petarudasil neighborhood is, is like? It's, it's like currently. Um, we are a very diverse neighborhood. We have a, a lot of different cultures in our neighborhood, so black, white, Hispanic, and um, Asian. Uh, we have a lot of uh, diversity in home types, too. We have little two-bedroom bungalows. We have three-bedroom, four-square you know, type homes. We have larger four-bedrooms like we do. Uh, so some are attached garages or detached or no garages. Most have a yard. Um, there are a lot of churches in our neighborhood. Actually, we drove around. I believe we have eight churches in our neighborhood association. Or perimeter. Well, even more if you count what's on the perimeter. Okay. I think there are 11 if you count the perimeter. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> one, only one school, Abbott, I believe, is our only school. Um, and, but we have a, a lot of accessibility in, in uh, our area. I think it's easy to get to wherever you want to go. So if you want to go to the grocery store or the library, we have four libraries within 10 minute drive of us. Um, We have uh, two parks. There's a huge park, Macmillan Park, at one end of Rudisil and a huge park, Foster Park at the other end. Rudisil was created as a large tree-lined boulevard connecting the two parks with Weiser Park just being a little bit to the north. And so our tree-lined boulevard has changed over the years because there was the Dutch elm disease, which killed a lot of the elm trees, and they had to replant. And we've had some other issues with trees along the way. Just a few years ago, they replanted again. They didn't do a great job, so some of those trees didn't make it through the winter. But um, it, the idea was to have a beautiful tree-lined boulevard in South Fort Wayne. And it was uh, sort of the gateway, I guess, of the area. Anyway, um, we have, like I said, we have a lot of diversity, and um, I don't know, it's, there's a lot of great people there of all ages. We have a lot of older retired people who don't want to leave their homes. They love their homes. They want to be there. And we do have some younger families moving in, but I'd say more of the younger families are probably Hispanic and black. And then I think we have the Asian families, from what I've seen, tend to be a little bit older, maybe. Um, I don't know if you've experienced that or not, but... Anyway, so I'd just say we are a very diverse neighborhood. Yeah. That's how I would describe us. Okay. Uh, what uh, talk about like the ages of the home? When did the neighborhood really start to develop, or did it kind of go in phases? Does anybody have any idea? Wasn't it? Uh, and you can correct me, but with the uh, post World War II and International Harvester mm-hmm. coming in, being a real boom, and so a lot of small houses, blue collar workers moved in to live close to International Harvester, a large employee base, and you have hundreds of those homes that uh, are, are pretty small. They've been there since uh, 40s. 40s, probably. 1940s, 50s. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Mid-50s. Mm-hmm. And Harvester employed somewhere around like 10,000 people in its prime, right? It was huge. Yeah. It was, it quite, was large. A, quite a few, yeah. yes. Harvester and GE were really the two big companies yeah. in Fort Wayne at that time, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else is unique uh, about the neighborhood in terms of any sort of housing or geographic kind of function or, or anything else that stands out to you guys? Well, I just, you mentioned about the tree line on Rudisil, but one of my favorite things is going up in one of the taller buildings in downtown. And as a youth pastor, I've taken youth up into high-rise buildings or on the rooftops downtown, and we've prayed over the city. But when you look south in our direction, southeast from downtown, you hardly see any houses. It looks like a forest. And uh, it's easy when you're in the um, in the community just to kind of look at, Alleys, streets, houses. Uh, if but if you look, you pick, pick your head up, then you see these huge mammoth, uh, full-grown, mature trees, and uh, and so it, it is. It's a beautiful part of being in the inner city, and yet, really, if you uh, look from up high, you look like you're looking down into a forest. Hmm. Yeah, it is. Cool. It's really yeah. it's really radical when you get a change mm-hmm. of perspective. Yeah, just what our city looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, for a city our size, I often talk about just how rural our our city really kind of is once you can get and just how spread out it is. Um, Other cities our size may have a smaller geographic footprint with the same kind of population density, but Foran's really unique in how spread out it is and that that nature of when you can get high above and uh, really mature trees and forest like that's that's interesting. Of course, that attracts squirrels. And uh, I don't know whether people like squirrels or not, but we always like them. You you feel like you're kind of... You know, in the country, you've got squirrels, you've got a lot of birds, all kinds of birds because of these full-grown trees. Raccoons, opossums. <laughs> yes. yeah. uh, when, when I thought about the question of what makes it unique, uh, what popped into my mind was eight minutes. Okay. Eight minutes. And Lori briefly touched on that. And I was thinking about it, you know, sitting there in my home, and I'm thinking, you know, in eight minutes, I could be to one of four different libraries. I could be to uh, three, actually four different parks. I could be to Menards and Walmart and such to do shopping. Um, I could be uh, to two different branches of the YMCA. Uh, Just, I I can get anywhere in about eight minutes. And when you consider that to some other areas of the town, that's uh, eight minutes wouldn't get you very far. Because we have less traffic. <laughs> I th- you know, when you compare us to the and north well side laid of, out. of Fort Wayne, we have less traffic, and I, that is nice. Yeah. I mm-hmm. like that a lot. In Pedro Russo, correct me if I'm wrong, is about a mile, mile and a half, about a mile and a half from really kind of the core of downtown, right? Mm-hmm. It's not so very far at all. Yeah, maybe so it's not two miles, maybe. Two miles. Two miles. We're in the sure. 30, we yeah. start the 3,900 blocks, so okay. if you count... Yeah. You know, 100 or 39 blocks away, yeah. so maybe okay. three miles. Got it. So not terribly far and right through a major north-south corridor mm-hmm. to get in and out of town. So accessibility and resources are are a big part of what makes kind of the community happen. Uh, it is... With, yeah, uh, ahead, actually, you, you mentioned the, the corridors, and we, we uh, actually haven't brought that up on the on the podcast, but Pettit Rudisil is bounded by uh, Lafayette on, on the uh, west. west side, Anthony on the right side, Rudisil on the north side, and Pettit on the south side. Okay, so all those different streets, like I said, well laid out, uh, none of this meandering uh, sort of 
uh, roads that can take place other places, nice square cut. Mostly. Uh, mostly. There's a couple of things. <laughs> There's that one area, yeah. But uh, for, for the most part, very, very straightforward and laid out, and that helps too uh, with the flow of traffic. Sure. Well, Lori and Randy, you guys uh, obviously communicated about like a long-term kind of connectivity of growing up. What was it like uh, in terms of like coming back and moving? So, Lori, tell us a little bit more about your history in the neighborhood in terms of like the whole kind of life you've seen in the neighborhood from from childhood to now. Talk about some of the the things that you loved when you were a kid and what may or may not have changed for the for the better or or worse. One of the main things I remember, because I did live on Rudisil, is that Rudisil originally was a two-lane road. We had parking on both sides of the street. Okay. Everybody walked and to, to school, for instance. We always, I went to Bethlehem, which was eight blocks from my home, and I walked to school. I went to Ben Geyer. We often walked there. I went to Southside. We walked there. Uh, and uh, the... It felt more like a neighborhood because we had parking on Rudisil and not as not as much traffic. They got rid of the parking on Rudisil. They said it was because they needed <coughs> to have <coughs> excuse me snow routes. They needed to be able to plow Rudisil more quickly, so they wanted no parking on Rudisil. So they made it four lanes nobody could park. That's difficult when you have a neighborhood and you can't park, your, your friends can't park in front of your house. They have to park half a block or a block down and walk to your house. That's not as, as friendly, I think. But it was definitely a, a, a nice middle-class neighborhood when I was growing up. We rode our bikes everywhere. We walked everywhere. We knew all the neighbors. The neighbors knew us. People didn't lock their doors. Everybody was, you know, everybody was on a friendly term, I'd say. So that has changed over the years because um, we don't know everybody now. People are, are less likely to get out of their homes. I don't know if it's just our culture that people stay indoors more. You know, we, we all have our technology. We have our ways to entertain ourselves. And the kids don't play outdoors like they used to. So the adults don't, adults don't get out as much. The kids don't get out. We don't know each other as much. So we don't know what's going on in each other's lives. So if there is a need, we talked about neighbor look, link filling needs, we don't always know what those needs are because we're not talking as much. So I have seen a difference in the neighborhood, but I have a feeling that's probably true of most neighborhoods. Yeah. I um, don't know what else to say about that exactly, but <clears throat> I have seen, definitely have seen a difference over the years. It's kind of a gradual change. So Mark, you and, and Amy and your family obviously didn't, didn't grow up here. You said you moved and you kind of migrated south and then planted for almost 20 years now. What attracted you guys initially to the neighborhood? It was a strong influence of the church that we attended on Tillman Road, Fellowship Missionary Church on the south end. And so as we were making uh, finding our home at that church, that was we don't have family in town, so... Our church family became our family. And the more that our senior pastor at the time, Dave DeSelm, talked about being more um, relevant to the community around us, uh, the more it just made sense to move into that community and not look outside. Now, when we lived up north, I mean, I just recall being a graduate of college, living up north, 
and somehow getting the message, you got to be careful when you drive south. Like I just remember being green and being new to Fort Wayne, being pretty clueless, and they would say things about South Anthony, right? I'd hear about Creighton. I'd hear about Hannah. Um, and so I, I just re recall as we were searching for apartments and things like that back in the late 90s, that as we would head south farther and farther, we would get that sense. We'd get that sense of, oh, we're not, we're in the not so good part of town. Um, but then as we, as we continued to move and we moved down by church at Southbridge Apartments, we realized really quickly that people are people, you know, there are people that make good choices and there are people who make poor choices. And, uh, and yet for the most part, people want to be known, they want to be cared for, they want to be liked as we do. And, uh, and so just the influence of the church, and I, I'd be remiss to say that the cost of living, <laughs> you can't get any less expensive than where we were moving towards. And so, you know, I was looking at finances and what we could afford, and uh, we moved there at an incredibly uh, low price for our mortgage, low price for purchasing a house, moved into the neighborhood and said, we want to be neighbors and get to know neighbors, and uh, we've raised our kids there, yeah. What are some of the things you've taken away? You talk about you talked about the narrative about uh, living outside of a particular neighborhood, hearing a narrative about um, a different part of town that you didn't have a lot of context for, and probably those that that had the narrative didn't have much context other than news or you know general influences. Once you guys moved there, what was how long before you started to kind of really see um, the narrative maybe be either being affirmed or um, being changed in terms of like, oh, this may, may, oh, this is like that, or this is much different? Well, I think that um, you, you kind of tend to either associate yourself with what is generally said, general perspectives, and you just kind of subscribe to them, or you tend to possibly want to test that or chafe at that. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that said, I, I don't want to just kind of subscribe to what is generally spoken in general ways. I want to find out for myself. And then there's a, a almost like a, a rebellious spirit that says, people don't know what they're talking about. People, there, there are people here that are just like me. And, and how dare they speak about what they don't know. And so as I moved in, you develop that pride of don't talk down about my neighborhood. I live there. You're talking down about me. And um, you're talking down about my, my friends or the people next door to me that I know and you don't know them. And so that, that sense of pride um, will really knock down um, generalities. And, the, and, and we were there um, really quickly. We could see that, okay, there are maybe there's more graffiti in our neighborhood or maybe there, our neighborhood is on the news more. But what would so often happen was I would hear about the news from people that didn't live in my neighborhood before I knew about the neighborhood news. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's just how word travels in, in news media in different ways. I didn't know anything about it until I learned about it from others, and it really didn't affect me. Um, so, yeah, you become personally inclined toward what you, what you want to believe and what you want to kind of resist believing because it's a gross generality. Yeah. I imagine for someone that wasn't, didn't have maybe long-term connectivity, so maybe a little less nostalgic or like deeper roots into life like Lori and Randy had with 
uh, you know, now living in the home you grew up into in terms of like, there's some strong pulls to that, you know, for, for you and your wife, like you, you guys weren't from there. You didn't have to stay there, but you've stayed there for 19 years. There's, uh, if it was so bad, I'm sure you would have moved a long time ago. Well, you know, one thing that just brought, uh, came to mind that makes a significant difference. Pettit Rudisil neighborhood has a extremely uh, high percentage of little children and youth really all the way down, but it, it, the percentage grows as the age gets smaller. So zero to four compared to the rest of Fort Wayne. Well, it's, it's really hard to be really scared of little kids. And that's some of my first memories of moving into our house and be, having no children, being young marrieds, and having these little kids come and want to play. And so I, w- I was working third shift at the time, and my wife would have to tell these little children, you know, come back later, Mr. Mays is sleeping, but if you come back around noon, then he'll be up and you can play. And so I began you know, uh, playing with little children in our neighborhood, in our backyard, in the school lot behind us on a regular basis. And that really makes you feel like your neighbors Yeah. when you're playing with kids. Yeah. One of the unique things about this research as we're diving into, and it's really kind of affirming what we've been feeling about this project in general at NeighborLink, is just how how important it is to spend time getting to know your neighbors and being connected. And as, as an outside organization that doesn't necessarily have uh, a home of our own other than the office that we're in, um, because we spend so much time in the neighborhoods interacting with a, a wide variety of uh, neighbors and homeowners, we see so many of the same characteristics, no matter what the neighborhood is, in terms of people and pride and the care for the neighborhood. We have the fortunate ability to work with a lot of homeowners. So a lot of people have been in their homes 15 to 40 years because they've, you know, we're working primarily with an older demographic or people that have been around for a while. And so uh, we care a lot about the relationships. So we ask a lot of questions about, like, what's changed? How long have you lived here? Do you know your neighbors? And we always walk away, no matter the uh, the state of the neighborhood or what you th- might perceive or the socioeconomics in that area of saying, there's a lot of really great people here. And they've been kind of carrying the carrying the neighborhood on their backs in various ways over the years that uh, a lot of the same characteristics that you see in like the public perceived good neighborhoods. And then you go into other neighborhoods that, that have a high level of perception or maybe a a different narrative about that side of town where there's maybe resources and you see that they're lacking some of the social connectivity or the, or the ownership aspects that make neighborhoods great. So it's really interesting to hear everyone's perspective on um, what does it mean to like kind of really engage as, an, as a neighbor. Now, we do know that, um, you know, your neighborhood is in kind of a an area of town that that is on the news more often than not, that it does have some social challenges um, related to all kinds of aspects. Would be curious to know from your perspective what have been some of the 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 key challenges in the Petrusel neighborhood in the last five, eight, ten, fifteen years. Um, maybe it goes back to to a time where you've noticed like things were really great, and then around this time things started to change. Curious what you you would how you would respond to that, or like to begin that discussion. Um, well, I, I know there was a time when I was probably in high school that we had what they called white flight. Uh, it was primarily a white neighborhood and realtors came and 
after, after some black families started moving in the neighborhood, probably when I was even in grade school, the realtors came to other, other homeowners and said, oh, we have black people moving in the neighborhood. You'd better get out of here because your home value is going to go down. Mm -hmm. And they, they were frightening people to move because they were going to make a profit on that sale of the house, you know. <clears throat> so uh, that happened, unfortunately, from fear. And what kind of era, like you can, what years? That would be like maybe in the 60s, okay. uh, 70s, that time period. Um, we had lovely black families moving in to the neighborhood. You know, there was not, they, they were not to be afraid. We were not to be afraid of them and we should have embraced them. But they, the, the realtors really created that. And then the news media kind of jumped on that too. Um, the problem is then we went from, from other cultures moving in and owning their homes to a lot of landlords buying up properties cheap and renting them. <clears throat> Sorry. And um, then we had, so then we have a lot of transient neighbors. They, they come in, they'll live there maybe less than a year and out they go. You never really get to know them that way. That is really hard. So having so many rental properties and I would say those landlords who own many properties are the ones t that tend not to keep up their properties very well. So those people don't want to stay very long. They want to, they, they live there for a while and off they go. I don't know what their reasons always are. But that is a problem because we don't feel connected to them. And, and after you get burned a few times, you know, you reach out to them and you take them the apple pie and you welcome them to the neighborhood and then all of a sudden they're gone. Mm -hmm. uh, it, that's, that is a hard situation. I don't like that at all. So you tend to want to go, well, should I even bother getting to know them because they might not be here in a few months. Sure. So I'd say that's one of the hard aspects of this change is that the, the people just come and go too quickly. Yeah, and I don't think that's... Um... <clears throat> race-based it is, it is socioeconomic it is uh i can i i'm having a hard time making my payment so i found a place cheap here it's not really where i'd like to be um, so if i can get out i will but i'm here temporarily and so right next door to me uh, there's probably been uh, eight or ten uh, families that have come through and they've been all races i've uh, the most recent one was a burmese family and they were here just for a year a muslim burmese that lived for a year, and then they're moving closer to where the mosque is, just south of us. Um, but we've had African-American and white and Hispanic, all at the house next door, um, anywhere from being there for six months to being there for two years, but okay. that's about the max. So that turnover is, is a challenge. Right, and then on, right on the other side <coughs> is a neighbor that's a homeowner that's been there longer than I have, so, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you go about kind of changing that narrative in terms of like how do you increase home ownership these days among among some of your neighbors in your neighborhood like what are some of the thoughts well, one of the things that the good things that has happened is because the homes decreased in price there and maybe some of them weren't cared for very well for a while we had uh, hispanic families especially coming in buying a home that needed repairs and was very inexpensive they were able to buy that house and they put a lot of their own sweat equity into that home. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a lot of homes that have really been improved and those families are working hard yeah. to make those homes nice and to make them more of a forever home. Yeah. 
<clears throat> so that is wonderful. I love it when I see, see them out there. They're, they're pounding and they're painting and doing all these things. So I'm delighted to see some families moving in, taking advantage of what I say is we, we get a lot of house from our, for our money in Southeast Fort Wayne. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're getting a, a lot more than whatever they came from and they're able to uh, make it a good home. And so that's really mm -hmm. lovely. How do you guys respond to, as long-term homeowners, uh, caretakers and stakeholders in the neighborhood, oh, you know, we've identified a lot of like, yeah, there's some transient, but you just described like there's, there's an entire culture, there's a subset of our community that's coming in and investing in that area. Mm -hmm. Well, it isn't, um, I imagine you have to deal with the conversation in terms around crime and because you, you can get blanketed around the crime. So how do you interact around crime issues in your neighborhood in terms of if somebody's going to come and talk to you and say, yeah, that's all great, but there's an awful lot of crime. What do you guys usually say to that in terms of trying to like, yeah, there might be some crime, but it's not as bad as you might think. It's not as bad as you might oh, think. And a lot of times what we see in the news media is when, a, when something happens in Southeast Fort Wayne, they say, this happened in Southeast Fort Wayne. But when it happens in Georgetown, they don't say this happened in Northeast Fort Wayne. Okay. When it happens uh, around the mall, they don't say this happened in Northwest Fort Wayne. So they're not. They're so there's a difference in narrative in terms of blanket statement in a quadrant of the city rather yes. than a specific neighborhood or Absolutely. you know collection of neighborhoods. Yes, and I see it. Uh, each Sunday I take the paper and I look at it and they've got that section where they're, these are the crimes that have been reported and you look down there and sometime earlier this, this spring, it was like three weeks in a row I'm going, what, did they just forget to include our neighborhood? You know, <laughs> there's, there's nothing there. <laughs> How can there be nothing there if we're such a dangerous uh, neighborhood? <laughs> and. Uh, um, you know, it just boggles my mind that that um, uh, caricature of us is still out there, still uh, being fed by the media. And, uh, you know, it just, uh, it's bothersome. Uh, yeah. It certainly is. If you ask most people where, what is the most crime-ridden uh, neighborhood or crime-ridden area Fort Wayne, they would probably say it's southeast Fort Wayne, somewhere in southeast. But if you look at the stats, I believe it's around Glenbrook Mall. Okay. That's the most crime-ridden area of Fort Wayne. But you don't you get right that. down to the data, it tells a different <laughs> mm -hmm. story. Yes. Mark, as, as somebody that's involved in, in a local church, that because that, we, we go to church, and I know that together, and we, we know that for the past 15 years, our congregation is, there's a large percentage of people saying, we want to embrace and be a part of and and... Um, attempt to to be a representation of the neighborhood in which we are, or at least the side of town. And so we've all, whether personally or collectively, attempted to embrace and figure that out mm -hmm. in our own kind of ways. And I know that's part of your journey, uh, moving into a neighborhood, trying to be a neighbor um, the best you can and try to get to know that. How do you typically respond to maybe other people at Fellowship or other believers or individuals that you interact with that have this idea of social justice or engagement or like wanting to be a part of a solution in a, in a troubled area. How do you typically respond to those kind of questions? Cause I'm sure you, you get hit up by that too. Like how do you continue to live in that particular side of town? Well, I think the, the biggest thing is to be, to be present 
And so it's a, a little difficult when there is uh, great notions, uh, benevolent notions to make a difference, um, but it's sort of put your toe in the water and step out or come in and come out and that kind of thing. It's, it, you do feel good when you go somewhere that is struggling and you do a nice service or a good deed or you do a prayer walk. Those, those are, are very kind things and good things, uh, but it's not really true presence. And uh, it, uh, it might scratch an itch, but it doesn't really get under the surface. And I don't have the answers. I think these uh, systemic challenges, uh, they go well, well beyond where we've come to in our present day. They have very deep roots. So it's not something that you can just change by doing a few uh, kind things or getting a rally together or say, let's, let's, let's really get excited and passionate and do something here and there. Our attention spans are really short. And so we might get excited and get vision and imagination for making a difference uh, because it feels good to have a cause and it feels good to make a difference. Uh, but oftentimes difference making happens over many more years than what we have in and of ourselves. And that's why you, I would say you see an awful lot of difficulties in particular neighborhoods because there's been years and years of ramifications of years and years of oppression and hurt and segregation and divide and privilege versus non-privilege. There's been years and years. And so an individual or a group or a family that wants to make a difference, um, is that's valiant, that's great, but it has to be bigger than their individual attention spans. Mm -hmm. And so for 20 years, we've been there, and we can say realistically that it doesn't make a big difference with one family being there, but it's part of what's needed. Uh, a neighborhood needs neighbors that want to be neighborly, and that needs to happen year after year after year, increasingly, 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 without regard of did I see fruit today or last year and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's uh, so challenging. My my wife and some other folks, we chose to move into our neighborhood kind of in the same kind of vein in terms of we want to be closer to the places we're serving or working and be intentional in a neighborhood in an attempt to uh, simply just become a better neighbor. And at the time, we were learning quite a bit about just community development philosophies and terms and how some of the leaders uh, that we were kind of listening to is like, don't don't even think that you're going to begin to know what needs changed or, or uh, the, the vision that you may have for like seven to 10 years. And for us, that's been true. Like we've been living there and it was completely different. Um, I'd been doing NeighborLink for, for quite a few years before that point. And so, you know, you get enough of these projects and to your point, like you kind of bounce in and out and you think like, how, how could you ever really respond? And so, you know, it's been 10 years before we're even kind of catching a glimpse of like some of the real issues. And that's because we're invested there day after day. We're investing in the neighborhood, we're raising our families, like we're experiencing crime and uh, having to deal with that and try to understand it and figure out how you live in those kind of realms. And uh, the idea of trying to love your neighbor um, through transactions, even like through something like neighbor, NeighborLink, is radically different than when it's on your street or the neighbor to your left and right. And uh, it's been a good experience. So that's, that's an interesting way to think. And I think there is um, there's a perspective of being a learner and being a receiver mm. that is helpful. I go in thinking I, I missed out on something 
being in the um, kind of white upper middle class Chicago suburbs growing up as a kid. And so I experienced um, uh, early elementary being in um, 100% white as far as I knew as a kid in southern Indiana. And then in my preteen years and high school years being in um, primarily white upper middle class Chicago suburb. And so I'm very ignorant as it relates to the world, very homogenous, very limited in my proximity and relationships. And early on, I thought, boy, I'd love for my children to have a wider scope of relationship and understanding and access to people different than them than what I had growing up. And so all along, we're not um, people coming in doing a lot of helpful things, but we're being helped as, as a family, we're becoming um, just have a have a better uh, worldview, a more well-rounded education of our kids to have friends that are different than them. And our kids have had a lot of friends that are much different than them that I didn't have mm. growing up. And so to be a learn, take a learning posture, a receiving posture. I have, I have benefit to receive just from being around people different than me. Mm. Is going to help us be better neighbors. Yeah. Well, we talked about diversity quite a bit, and um, we kind of started before we uh, started the podcast today, but. We're all white around the table, but we know that there's a lot of other diverse groups and it just happened that the podcast happened today and schedules and all those things, but there's a lot of diverse leadership on your neighborhood board. Um, talk about how that plays into the part of like how you guys as kind of neighborhood leaders strategize for improving the neighborhood. Honestly, I don't even think about that issue. Yeah. I don't. I'm sorry, I just don't see them as different. We are, I think because we have lived amongst other cultures for so long, gone to church with other cultures, worked with other cultures for so long, I don't even see that anymore. Mainly it's just whether or not they feel committed to the neighborhood or not. That's really the only yes. differing aspect of them. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, And are willing to step up and be a part of the leadership. That's mm-hmm. awesome. And I, Again, I, I don't even think about what what ethnicity they are. Mm-hmm. Well, as neighborhood leaders, what's what's exciting? What's going well in Petarutasil these days? Like, what have you guys been working on that you feel like you're getting some wins around? Well, uh, I'm I'm really happy that our four-lane Rudisil got changed to two lanes with bike lanes and a center turn lane. <laughs> that has slowed down the traffic. It used to be sort of a raceway down the Rudisol and that mm-hmm. has slowed things down and, and um, I have really appreciated that. So that has been a good thing. We have a, a neighborhood park at Rudisol and Robinwood that we uh, try to keep pretty and comfortable. It's got a couple of park benches in it so we see people down there sitting in the, at the, Every at the mm-hmm. benches or uh, waiting for their kids who are ready coming to get off the bus, something like that. There was even last summer some people who had a party at the park. And awesome. They had a group of people down there and had a good time. So we're happy that we have our little park. Uh, it's, it's not big. It was a, a lot that I believe the water table was too high or something and they couldn't build on that lot. Okay. So it was an empty lot for many years. And probably 30 years ago, 25 years ago, the city of Fort Wayne gave us the, the lot and gave us some funds and we made it into a, a pretty little lot. So we have that. Um, what else are we doing in the neighborhood? Well, we've got uh, the mayor just announced about all the money going into um, 
road and alley and sidewalk projects that are mm -hmm. it's going to be something to look forward to. Yeah, millions of dollars being invested in the area and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to that. It, uh, it'll be the usual. It'll be quite a mess, I'm sure. <laughs> well, you might have to take my eight-minute mark and kind of adjust it a little bit. Sure. But uh, um, when it's done, I'm sure it'll we'll all be glad that it's done. <laughs> yeah. I have been uh, really encouraged just in the last few months. First of all, NeighborLink had contacted me and said that they were interested in the neighborhood. Fellowship Missionary had contacted me and said they have some ideas about some things to do. Kingdom First has moved into our neighborhood, a new church, and they are interested in the neighborhood. Yeah. We've had uh, a new um, couple of young men that I, I, I'm familiar with who've recently purposely moved into the neighborhood to be light and salt to the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I've, we've had other people along the way the same kind of reasoning that they want to make a difference. And they, so they want to be part of the neighborhood, not just drop in and help with something. Yeah. And that has really encouraged me because yeah. sometimes it feels like I'm doing it all alone. <laughs> yeah, I just received an invitation email uh, yesterday of a couple men that live uh, in our neighborhood that have moved there intentionally to just be present, be neighborly. And uh, they, along with some friends, are committing to uh, walk and pray in their neighborhood every day for the month of May. And so they're uh, recruiting and asking other neighbors in the area to join in a couple times a week, two, three, or once a month. They're just trying to grow that sense of let's walk our neighborhood, take walks together, be together, meet neighbors and pray so that's a neat thing and, and you you mentioned uh, the the church kingdom first it, that's a neat thing we had a, a church that was sort of a dying church an elderly congregation just getting older and older and not growing and it finally and then we had a hispanic church that shared that church on mckinney and so we had an elderly aging kind of white population church heading out a hispanic congregation that came in and grew and grew and grew until they outgrew the facility wow and moved over to Simpson United Methodist. And then it stayed dormant for uh, maybe a couple of years of a church that had had some pipes burst and it was not, not a good situation. And Kingdom First came out of Grand Rapids and brought uh, what I've heard is 40 families wow. from Grand Rapids uh, with them and came and purchased the property on McKinney Kingdom First. They, they stayed uh, on Rudisil at the Summit Building for nine months or a year. And so that's just new life, new vitality, mm -hmm. new um, activity right there with Kingdom First. And that's a really neat thing. That's great. As we work to close, curious what you guys would say in terms of what, what do you think makes a healthy neighborhood healthy? Like what are some metrics that you've experienced as individuals in terms of like what makes a healthy neighborhood? I just think neighborhoods are made of people. So it's mm -hmm. kind of... Uh, you know, what, what makes a, a school healthy? You, you, you really want to talk about the faculty and the staff and the kids. What makes a church healthy? You want to talk about the people that go to the church. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just kind of a, a shell. Mm -hmm. And so the neighborhood is just a territory made up of people. And so the, the, the greater that you have healthy peeper, people, that's going to make a healthier neighborhood. And people become more and more healthy when they rub shoulders with healthy people. And so if you have people that are healthy, that part of, part of health means I, I want to know you, love you, learn from you, and uh, be your friend. And that, that increases, that grows 
um, that's something that's kind of unstoppable is the love of people and uh, and that makes to me a healthy neighborhood mm -hmm. the, the term for me comes to mind and it's very similar is, is caring you know people caring for one another caring for their neighbors caring for um, how their neighborhood looks and keeping things up so that uh, people driving by won't see uh, dilapidation. Uh, they'll see something that's vibrant and alive. And uh, I think that makes a big difference. And taking care of the, the neighborhood physically too. It's mm -hmm. really nice when you see somebody taking a walk and picking up cans and bottles, yeah. picking up the trash, mowing. Or, or I saw the other day somebody sweeping their curb, the street along the curb, yeah. sweeping the curb. <clears throat> That's awesome. You see anybody out fixing up their houses, planting? It, they're, first of all, just being outdoors. You see people outdoors. I think that's encouraging. And when you see them outdoors mowing their lawns and edging and doing something a little bit nicer, awesome. I just, I just want to go over and say thank you. Thank you for taking good care of your property because you know what? Your neighbors notice that. Yeah. In fact, that's one thing Lori tries to make a point of that at any of our meetings is passing out blank po postcards that are saying, Thanks, for, we've noticed that you did this or did that or something, and then people could take those and address them, drop a stamp on it. And, yeah. uh, you or know, just tuck them into their neighbor, yeah. neighbor's front door, you know, mm -hmm. saying thanks for, thanks for planting flowers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the best way to be, be encouraged is just being noticed. Um, mm -hmm. So many people working hard in small ways in their own neighborhood or taking responsibility for their own thing or taking responsibility for that other thing that no one else is really takes you know his owns and just being able to be seen every once in a while and that's a great idea that's a great idea what is uh the last final question what does it mean to be a good neighbor is anything different anything you guys would like to add in terms of like what does it mean to be a good neighbor i think uh willingness i've mentioned this before willingness to learn but that means to um receive access or have proximity to people different than you. Uh, that opens your sphere of not only influence, but opens yourself to being changed. And so um, the Good Samaritan is all about being a neighbor to somebody that you wouldn't naturally consider to be your neighbor, that story of the Good Samaritan. And uh, it's kind of the, a, a, a prime blueprint of a good neighbor is somebody that is open and willing to cross um, cultural barriers, racial barriers, uh, socioeconomic barriers to be a friend. Um, so I think that's, that's critical. I think reaching out to uh, those around you in small ways is really helpful. So things like greeting your neighbor, good morning, how are you doing today, what's yeah. going on? I have a garden, would you like some tomatoes? Um, well, you know, how are you doing with your car? I saw you working on it. You know, is that going okay? Mm -hmm. I've got a gardening tool. You needed to do. Did you need to borrow my ladder to get clean your gutters? You, know, mm -hmm. I just reaching out and talking to people. I just talking to people. So if you don't, if you always stay in your house, you know that's not a healthy neighborhood. But if you're getting it, getting out and greeting them and saying hello, hi, you're you're new here. I'm so and so. What is your name? You know, what brings you here? Just mm -hmm. the connecting with people is what makes it healthier. I think. That's cool. I'd have to echo most of what they're right. I mean. <clears throat>
Well, Lori, Randy, Mark, uh, really grateful that you chose to spend some time today um, to tell us more about Petarudasil. And thank you for participating in this research project and coming along this journey with NeighborLink. We are excited to learn more about your neighborhood and leverage any sort of resources we can. And uh, it means a lot to us that you would share this information for us. We hope to take the information and uh, provide it back that it could help some visioning and supportive and if nothing else, affirm all of the work that you guys have been doing as neighbors for a long time. And if we can inspire some other neighborhoods, neighborhoods and neighborhood leaders who are maybe having the same kind of challenges that you are uh, with some ways that they can improve uh, even better. So thank you for tuning in to this episode of Neighboring and our final series of this uh, What Makes a Healthy Neighborhood Healthy series. We will be back um, later this summer, sometime in July, with a follow-up podcast with some of the research we're hoping to to finalize at least this kind of part one sometime in june and have a report in july Uh, so we'll be back to give some results and hopefully welcome every neighborhood association back to the podcast later this uh fall and see what we've learned together have a great day